And so for people who don't know Sam Zell, he is a you know, billionaire real estate investor who had was in multifamily. And then it was really around, I think it was, you know, coming out of 2008, that he, he ended up liquidating his multifamily portfolio and going all in on mobile home parks. And you'll see more and more institutional investors will be moving in that direction. And the main reason is yield. When we're in this situation where cap rates are compressing, people want yield. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today's show, we had Christopher Nelson. Christopher is an experienced technology executive taking two different companies from startup to IPO. He's also a real estate investor, author, and co-founder of Wealthward Capital, which is a real estate investment firm that has a diverse portfolio of 3,000 multifamily units, mobile home parks, and ATMs. As most of you know, in my W-2 role, I'm in technology as well, so I was super excited to learn how Chris went from IPO to cash flow. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? All right. I hope you're ready for this because I am going to take you to another continent. They don't have this flavor here in North America, but when I was studying Spanish as a young professional, I was spending a lot of time in Argentina. Argentina has a phenomenal ice cream culture for all you ice cream people. And this is why I came on the show. I love ice cream. (laughs) My favorite flavor is, I hope you're ready for this, dulce de leche granizado. Now it sounds really fancy, but what it is, is it's dulce de leche ice cream with huge chunks of milk chocolate. It's absolutely phenomenal. I love it. And I had no idea about the Argentina ice cream culture like that. I actually thought since you're in Austin, you were going to go with some kind of like really niche Austin, keep Austin weird flavor, but we'll go with it. Yeah, no, it it is something that uh, literally sometimes haunts me as I'm looking around for ice cream and I'm like, I wish they had the dulce de leche granizado, but uh, I make it myself. What do you say? So how did they serve it? Is it in a cone? Is it in a bowl? Do they have a special way they prepare it or... Um, so they do a lot of cones there. So they have uh, the one of the big ice cream shops there is called Fredo, F-R-E-D-D-O. You know, you can look it up online, but yeah, you get the cone and then you can get, you know, different toppings and sprinkles sort of put on it, or you can do it in a bowl, but they serve nice big sugar cones that are almost the size of waffle cones, but they're actually, you know, sugar cones. Um, and I, that's the way I ate it. I absolutely loved it. Man, I am doing whole 30 right now. So we got to stop the conversations on ice cream or else my (laughs) mouth will start salivating over here. But uh, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So what I do today is I actually do a couple of things. So I am still a full-time W-2 employee at GitLab, where I am the Senior Director of Enterprise Applications. And as you stated early in the intro, it's one of the companies that I help get through a IPO event. At the same time, I'm also the co-founder and principal of Wealthward Capital. So Wealthward Capital was founded in 2018, and it was really to help technology professionals diversify their tech equity into passive income producing real estate, primarily uh, multifamily. And then now we've branched out into ATMs and mobile homes. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I actually don't know this question. So, or the answer to this question, but where did your real estate journey begin? Tell us about your first deal and how you got involved in real estate. Well, actually my first deal was actually through Fundrise. 
So when my wife and I, after our first IPO in 2012, we really wanted to get into commercial real estate. At that point, we were living in Menlo Park, California, and you sort of look at all the real estate there and it's like, this doesn't cash flow. That would be a lot to take down that building. Where do we invest? We were doing a lot of research at the time and found our way to Fundrise where, you know, this is a phenomenal tool for non-accredited investors where you can actually, now they've changed the model. Presently, it's more of a fund model, but at that point you were, you could put uh, $2,000, $3,000, $5,000 into individual investments. They did phenomenal reporting. So it was a, a great way for us to get some skin in the game and take all of the underwriting that we've learned and put it to use. So we invested at first in a, a condo upgrade in Brooklyn, in some apartments in Los Angeles, and then an industrial building in Washington, D.C. And so these were small amounts, and then it allowed us to really track and monitor them and then also understand some of the different asset classes. You're the first person that their first deal was ever in crowdfunding. Why did you all decide to go that route? Was it a diversification play? Was it a small bet? And let's see how this goes. What, what led you down that route? Well, at that point, that was really all we knew. You think about 2012, like this is when syndications, the Jobs Act was just sort of coming out. There was not, like when you go and search today, you're overwhelmed. There wasn't a lot out there. Private equity was still very much private. And so as we started researching, it was one of the first crowdfunding sites that really came out and then offered it, to your point, to a low risk dollar amount. So for us, we set aside $10,000 and then we invested it across these different asset classes. And we had been very, our focus had been to really understand the math behind real estate. So this gave us the opportunity to have real investments in play and then be, you know, ensuring that what we understood was really playing out. Okay. Well, I want to take us back a little bit to the IPO. So most sure. of our listeners might be in technology today, or they've heard of people being overnight millionaires through Facebook IPOs and Google IPOs and things like that. I personally have never gone through that process of being at a startup and going through an IPO, but I know plenty of folks that have. Can you talk to us a little bit about like, what does that process look like? What does the earnout periods look like? How can that be lucrative for somebody that's looking to maybe switch careers and get into technology or is already in technology? And now that uh, we're flipping over to the new year, might be negotiating with their boss for a bonus and can use that equity lever in their, um, in their career growth conversations. Well, and so that's, that's a big, that's a large scope of conversation, Matt. And so I think, you know, the first thing to do is to, to just understand that we should always work for equity, right? You know, if, if you're just working for a paycheck and a bonus, and there's the opportunity to work for equity out there, you're really leaving money on the table. And truly, I think it's, it's part of a Robert Kiyosaki's principle is you have the opportunity in working for equity where you can be a W2 employee and also an owner where people are working for you while you sleep. And so technology companies provide a phenomenal opportunity. Now, I have gone through a couple IPOs. The reason being is that I chose companies to go to work for that were 18 to 24 months from that event. I was very, very specific in the way that I looked at those companies. But taking a step back, I think like any investment, and this is what I want to encourage technology employees to do, and you don't have to be a 
you know, software engineer to, to make money in tech equity. I know pr plenty of people in finance, in marketing, uh, in other roles that are making great money in uh, technology companies working for equity. But like any investment, you want to look at the scope and say, what's your risk profile? I have helped a lot of people transition from early stage startup companies where they had a lot of equity, a lower salary, but they weren't clear on where they got the liquidity to go to work for Google or Lyft where they're actually getting their salary matched in equity and they're getting the liquidity in the first month. You know, they're able to actually then start investing some of that immediately. So my encouragement to, you know, the audience here is understand your risk profile and understand that if you look at it like an investment, there is a lot of opportunity. And later this year, I'm going to be publishing my book from NODO to IPO, which walks you through my process. But my experience was I worked for 10 years for a technology consulting firm called Accenture. And it was there, I really created a lot of career capital. So it's my education, my experience and results. So I was really experienced in how to implement cloud business systems, salesforce.com, Workday, NetSuite, high value to startup companies. So what happened to me is I wanted to leave Accenture and I wanted to go work for a startup company as a way to generate equity for my family. And guess what? The first, soft, the first startup company that I chose was a horrible mistake. It was. I ended up working for a bad boss, nursing an ulcer. And why was that? Because I made a very emotional decision. I had been burnt out doing, you know, I had a great run at Accenture, was surrounded by mentors, but I was burnt out and I didn't really want to talk to anyone about it. So what I did is I made a very emotional decision talking with a founder about a vision. What I didn't do is I didn't look at the underlying fundamentals of the company. I didn't really see how they were positioned, what relationships they had. And I really didn't do a lot of due diligence on who I was working for and what they were like in working for. And that was a bad decision. But like most failures, I chose to learn from it. And it was there that I created this process to really analyze not only the underlying fundamentals of the company, but also to really understand who I was going to work for and who was going to nurture my career capital. That's what led me through a series of networking relationships to find who was going to be my future boss and to become employee 417 at Splunk. Would you agree with the statement that we're, we're framing this conversation in the technology aspect, just because those are the big names that people typically know when you go through an IPO, but this conversation can be had with any kind of consumer brand company or any kind of startup company out there, or even private companies where you can get a portion of their profit split as well. That's true. I a hundred percent, like I I'm speaking, we're speaking to technology companies because that's what we know, but this is a pattern that you can go and you can apply to plenty of other industries as well. A hundred percent. Yeah. I I'm going to butcher his last name, but do you know Naval at all? I don't Twitter. Know so Naval has this concept. He's famous on Twitter and there's like a three hour YouTube video out there where he talks about how do you get rich the real way? And it's all around this concept of you need to be working for equity, not mm. working for a paycheck because ultimately equity will outrun and outpace your own single efforts. And it's very in line with what you're talking about is how do you get people to work for you and make you money while you sleep essentially? That's right. And it's, it's so interesting because one of the things that you know, as I was editing my book this morning, you know, I, I talked about the fact that working for equity and not being a founder, I think has many advantages because guess what? 
I walk in the door as a W-2 employee, I get the opportunity to work for equity and I manage that like an investment. So I watch it. How's it performing? I can, if it's not performing well, I can exit in two years versus a founder that they're going to have obligations to, uh, VCs or other investors that they need to continue on with that company. I have that flexibility. And I know plenty of people that have worked for, you know, a lot of different technology companies and have created a great portfolio of themselves of equity that's now serving them well in financial independence. Yeah, I think I heard a story of you telling um, when you were at uh, Splunk in the early days, you all hired a kid straight out of college who was a president of their fraternity who basically was paid very, very little, but he got a lot of equity. Fortunately, Splunk is a fantastic company out there, a great software company in the technology industry. And I think you were saying, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but essentially his net worth was around 800 or 900,000 just in those equity options because they did so well. So that shows you if a 22-year-old kid can come out of college and then three days later or three years later be worth close to a million dollars because of the, the performance of their company and the equity they get in it. I mean, it's a, it's a life changer. It really is. And the interesting thing to note there is that was post IPO. And this is one of the things that I want to draw people's attention to is that if you get a company that has just gone public, that is a phenomenal time to join too, because sometimes the stock price is lower. The, the company still has a lot of growth. They're growing from, you know, a, a hundred and fifty million or 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 two hundred million in revenue to a billion. There's still a lot of growth that's going to drive the stock price up. You can get RSU shares in tranches that will then really increase in value. That's exactly what he did. Yep. Yep. Would you? Um. So we're coming into the early part of this year. A lot of people are having career conversations and bonus times coming around. Do you have any tips or tricks for anybody that's having that career conversation with their boss today to negotiate an RSU, which is a restricted stock unit, right? If I'm not mistaken, or tranches yeah. or equity in the company? Well, so for somebody, if you're already inside a company, I think the most important thing that I advise people on is, is taking a moment and you need to reflect on what I call your career capital, which is your education, your experience, and your, your results. Your education, th that's nice to have at this point. It's really focused on when you're in the company, on your experience and your results. And for your boss, that conversation needs to be results focused. And I tell people that you want to have this outside in lens of, okay, what are you doing that's impacting the customer? What are you doing that's impacting the 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 company at large? What are you doing that's impacting your department? And then what are you doing that's, you know, maybe impacting, you know, the, the smaller members of your particular team. But if you're able to go to your manager with those particular results and really articulate the fact that I love working for this company, what's more important to me than dollars is actually shares, is ownership shares. I think that's a very reasonable conversation to have. And I always want people to approach it with, I'm here to negotiate right? It's so important for people to understand, but you need to come to understand that it's not time and seat. It's value that you bring into the table. That's going to be your leverage. So that's to people who are in the company. The one, the biggest piece of advice that I give to people that are applying for jobs right now. And, and this is the one piece that has worked so well for many people that I've coached is when you get an offer from a technology company, the HR person, generally speaking, or your manager is going to sit down and they're going to walk you through the offer. You listen intently and ask any clarifying questions. Oh, is, is this, this, is this, that? Then you take a pause at the very end. You look at them and you say, what on this is negotiable? And then you take a pause. And I will tell you that 
nine out of 10 people, the response that you get is somebody who will tell you immediately, oh, the equity or the salary, they, their response will tell you what on that you have the ability to then come back with an offer. Because by telling that question, number one, you're setting the stage that you're here to negotiate. Number two, they will then tell you what on there is available for negotiation so that you know where you can move the needle. I love that. What on here is negotiable because everything in life is negotiable. You just have to find the right terms. And you have to ask for it. And, and the thing is, is it's, it's a very simple and disarming question. And, and you'll find that uh, most people are, you know, most HR professionals are not expecting that. And then they will turn around. And again, the response that I've gotten from uh, people that I've coached that are, have, you know, just asked this question has been phenomenal. Yeah. Being in sales, the number one thing I've taken away in my career is that you don't get what you don't ask for. So you might as well just ask for it because the only thing they can say is no. I want to switch gears now. So you have this big IPO event at Splunk and you start investing in Fundrise. You get a little taste of that passive income, that monthly yeah. reoccurring income coming in, and then you decide to do more. What was that next step? What did that look like for you? Where did you get involved? Well, the, the next step, uh, was actually a move. So we left the Bay Area and we moved to Austin, Texas. Before it was cool. <laughs> before it was cool. Yes. Before all this craziness happened. So um, it was in that move that, you know, we got into some small, uh, we got into some single family homes. And so we, cause we saw the ability to buy cash flowing single family homes here in the area, which was absolutely amazing. And then we were actually able to find different multifamily apartments and operators that we could personally get to know. We could be at meetups with them. We could have meetings. We could walk the properties. I mean, it really opened up for us what we weren't able to really understand or realize when we were living in California. And so we started making different investments in multifamily, and we were focused on Dallas, Austin, and San Antonio. And we were investing for ourselves and our family. And as I started sharing what we were investing with, with a group of peers that we shared, you know, investing advice or, or, you know, what we were doing together, I had people start raising their hands saying, we want to invest with you. We want to invest with you. And it was at that point, my wife and I, we weren't sure that we wanted to facilitate investments but we realized that people needed help. People were just like us where they were living in these high cost of living areas. They couldn't see beyond the big buildings that were there and that the, the low cap rates and the high cost of, of entry. So that's when we decided that we're going to form Wealthward Capital to you know, help technology employees. But it's based on the thesis that we're investing our family's money first and we're asking other people to come invest with us and we're presenting our thesis. Again, before it was cool, like you were investing in the Dallas, Austin, San Antonio markets 10 years ago when they were uh, still little blips on the radar. And now they are phenomenal, phenomenal markets. Like if those are the markets everybody wants to be in. So that's, that's tremendous right. foresight there. So you went from single family to apartment units. I mean, we've kind of talked a little bit about on the show why people move from single family to apartments, but in your experience, why, why did you all make that move from going from single family to apartments? Like many people, it was scale. It was scale in the sense that we could then invest in apartments passively. We did not need to scale this portfolio. We still have our single family portfolio. It is now providing, you know, after all of the appreciation in Austin going crazy is now producing a 15% cash on cash return. So that's going to stick around for a while. 
but it was really scale. And then what we realized is we could start investing more uh, dollars, but we did not have to invest more time like we were committed to to this. And so it's a it's you know once you do the math, once you have the experience, it's very simple. But I also know that many people love to own their own property. Like that's really important for some people. Yep. Yep. Okay. Now I want to shift from apartments to multifamily and maybe even ATMs, because I know when most people hear ATMs, they might be thinking like, why, why in the world would people invest in that? But I know you have some really compelling reasons on that, but I, I want to shift to mobile homes. So tell us a little bit about like why mobile homes? Why now? What, why is this different than multifamily? Well, you mentioned something just a little bit ago. You said, wow, like, you know, may, you know, if you think, you know, four, five, six, 10 years ago, investing in multifamily, the investments were very different than they are today. The nature of those investments were high cash flow, eight, nine, 10, 11% cash on cash return. As interest rates were continuing to move lower, you could do these cash out refis. It was a very different vehicle. Now today, what we're seeing is as we've been you know, continuing to exit properties and then buy new properties here in Central Texas, as cap rates are going down, these investments, while they still cash flow, are becoming closer to a growth vehicle where you're getting more dollars on that exit, you know, so you're not getting the monthly cash on cash return, but you're getting it when you exit the property in, you know, two, three, five years versus the cash on cash. And ultimately, we got in this to build a cash flowing portfolio. So that's where, again, we went on this journey of what asset classes are producing the best cash flow right now. And coming out of 2020, it was self storage and it was mobile home. The difference that we saw in those asset classes is that self-storage, they're producing a lot more self-storage units. Like they're, they're, there's a lot of units that are coming on, online. There's a lot of uh, areas that are continuing to invest in, in building out self-storage. Mobile homes, they're not. Mobile home is a shrinking asset class. There's a lot of not in my backyard. There's not a lot of, of municipalities that are then saying, yes, we want to put in more mobile home parks. So we saw the scarcity, but then we also saw the demand. There is a housing crisis in this country. Like we need to own that. There is an affordable housing crisis in this country and mobile home parks solve that problem. And the majority of mobile home parks are run inefficiently because they're owned by mom and pops. They're owned, they're owned by people who built the parks 30, 40 years ago, they're running them as a business that just funds their family so they can run it at a 70% occupancy because they have no debt, you know, and then they run it as a cash business so they can collect $10,000, put $8,000 in the bank. They can do that. But guess what? That's not going to appraise at the bank. And, and there's an opportunity to then literally do some you know, core value add of just cleaning up the park, running it like a business, you know, handling some work requests and filling up all of the park where the next thing you know, you've increased the value tremendously. There's cash flow and there's the ability for cash out refis. If you look at the history of mobile home parks, from my very high level understanding is like in the 60s and 70s, as people were moving out west and these new towns were springing up, they were really incentivizing easier ways for people to be able to have housing. So 
to your point, a lot of governments were just saying, hey, yeah, absolutely. If you're bringing people here, we've got jobs to fill, we've got incomes coming in, that's tax revenue, we'll take it. Now, though, if you're sitting on a city council, you can either approve a new hotel, a new shopping center, or a mobile home park, you're probably going to pick the shopping center or something that looks sexier on its surface than just mobile home parks because of their bad nature. So because of that, I think there is a tremendous opportunity for those people that built these parks in the 60s and 70s, who have operated them ever since then and are in the later half of their career, are figuring out secession plans to go grab those assets and quote unquote, institutionalize them. And I don't mean that in a bad way as much as just put processes around them, make sure that the bad tenants get out, make sure that you're cleaning things up and just cleaning up the area. I know there are a lot of named investors or a lot of folks in this space that a lot of folks don't know about, but who are you seeing investing in this space right now? Well, we're seeing Sam Zell. And so for people who don't know Sam Zell, he is a you know, billionaire real estate investor who had was in multifamily. And then it was really around, I think it was, you know, coming out of 2008, that he, he ended up liquidating his multifamily portfolio and going all in on mobile home parks. And you'll see more and more institutional investors will be moving in that direction. And the main reason is yield. When we're in this situation where cap rates are compressing, people want yield. And I do believe that just like institutional investors, a lot of people who are investing for passive income who want that to fuel their financial independence are going to need to look at these other asset classes as well. Yeah, I'm going to give a shameless plug also to Warren Buffett, who owns Clayton Homes. Uh, Clayton Homes is based out of Knoxville, Tennessee, where I went to school, and I'm from Tennessee. So I just always like to, when we're talking about this, if you think that Warren Buffett doesn't know or Sam Zell doesn't know something that we don't know, it's a tremendous asset class that most people aren't even aware of. Um, When we start looking at some of the risks, though, obviously, mobile home parks have a certain stigma around them. How do you all, when you buy these uh, uh, communities, kind of minimize that risk? What does your process look like on making them operational? Just talk us through that a little bit. Well, let's get back to what what we both know best, which is technology. One of the easiest ways to start streamlining operations in a mobile home park is take it cashless. So one of the easiest pieces of technology to stand up is there's pay near me. And so this is a, a feature where through a QR code that you can have on somebody's phone, they can actually have a hard copy. They can walk into a dollar store, a 7-Eleven, even Walmart, show the code, give the cash, goes directly to the bank account. So immediately you're removing the risk of cash moving around. And even in today's you know COVID era of, of disease changing hands, but that is number one way, bringing technology technology. Number two in technology is also then a lot of utility buildbacks. You'll find that a lot of these older mobile home parks have just water that's just coming in and the owners are paying the water. So then putting meters uh, on the individual properties and being able to do buildbacks is, is a very easy way for a value add feature. And then also bringing in more conservation responsibility. People, when they start paying their own water bill, guess what? They use less. But I think the biggest risk, like anything, has to do with operations and who you're operating with. And so for myself, choosing experienced partners that have you know, a seven-year track record of success running two to 3,000 pad um, portfolios, you know, trading over time so that you know, the number fluctuates, super important. And, you know, who we're partnered with, too, are we are also helping support a veteran owned operations business. And so these are experienced uh, 
professionals that have been overseas, that have been in military zones, that they understand how to you know, serve and protect, how to come in and secure the perimeter, ensure that, number one, these properties are physically safe for the tenants. And, you know, it's it's so great to be a part of an investment like this, Matt, because we get emails all the time just thanking us for taking over the park, making it clean, making it safe so that their kids can walk to the bus stop. Yeah, that, that warms my heart a bit because I remember as 2020 was going down, my number one rule to any property manager I hire is safety first. Like, I don't care what it costs, as long as our, our tenants and our residents feel safe at where they're living, it's my job to provide them a safe, stable home. It's their job to fulfill the obligations of the lease. And that's how I've I think about our dual responsibility in that. So I love that mm. comment there. Talk to us a little bit about like where you're looking for and how do I define like what makes a good investment for mobile homes? Is there specific pads or do you own the homes? Do you lease them back? What Talk us through a little bit about that. We tend to look for parks that are are owned by, you know, mom and pops, individual owners that have owned them for a lengthy period of time. We definitely look in growing markets right now. We're primarily in Fayetteville, North Carolina, but we're looking all throughout the Southeast as we continue to expand our portfolio. And we do look for park-owned homes. So this was a, a style of operating a park where the park owned the home and was actually charging rent on the home and rent on the lot. And this is also one of the inefficiencies that we see in the market because the bank just really cares about lot rent. And we see a real opportunity to create parks. And this is why we call, you know, it's Thrive Community Fund and Thrive Communities is because we really want to then encourage home ownership. We're looking to sell the homes back to the owners, establish a market rate lot rent, which sometimes can actually lower their overall cost burden. But as we're filling in the occupancy and running these parks efficiently, we can create a win-win for these tenants And exactly to your point, Matt, establishing the relationship that says, we want to set you up as a homeowner. We want to give you an affordable place to live. And this is your responsibility. Our responsibility is to make sure that you have all the services you need. This environment is safe. And this environment provides all of the services and the landscaping that's going to make it a pleasant place to live. I love that. Can you help us understand lot rent in case that's a new term for anybody out there? Sure. So so a lot is... As, as a mobile home park operator, our job is to provide a lot that is zoned and spec'd for a mobile home to be set upon that provides you know, all of the electricity, the water, and the sewer to that. And so that is what a lot is. So imagine that a lot is then prepared for a brand new manufactured home to be sat on top of it. Essentially, what you're doing is you're going in, you find a park home with 100 units on it. They're all owned by the park. You'll take that and then sell back that home to that specific resident or tenant or whatever. So now they become a a, a homeowner. This gives them more stake in the community, more stake in being good citizens, more stake in keeping up their home, et cetera, and things like that. And where you all are making the money is now shifting those utilities onto them, shifting those repair costs onto them since they're the homeowner, but you're charging them the the piece of land, essentially the dirt, as some people call it in the mobile home um, niche there back to the tenant. So you're getting that reoccurring revenue with very little overhead because all you're in charge of at that point is making sure it's safe and the environment's good, but also just keeping up the dirt that's underneath it. 
Well, right. And all the services that come there. So the way that we like to think about it is that we, we are an HOA. And so this is where part of our value add is also bringing in community gardens, also planting fruit trees, right? We truly want these environments to thrive. We want to bring in places where people can be, have some level of self-sufficiency when it comes to food and also bring healthy food as well. We're also, you know, working as part of, you know, we're, we're planning to own these properties for 10 years. We have a 10 year business plan that gives a cash out refi at year five, continuing to provide infinite returns for the rest of the period of time. So for the five years, and during that, an optimization period that comes around year four to five, we really want to then start bringing in more social services and really create this concept that mobile home parks are safe environments that with a well-run park will encourage people to actually better themselves and, and move on and move out. Man, that's awesome. And I, I hope people understand why I get super excited about this niche. Not a lot of folks know about it, but I think it's one of the most un- over overlooked, underrated niches out there. So you brought a great perspective to that. I, w- I want to shift us now, though, to the last five questions. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first yeah. one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Oh, wow. Okay. So that's two different questions. So I guess I'm going to answer that with two different books. Can I go two books? As long so as it's not your one, own. So this one is, is this was one of the first real estate books I read. This is actually the second copy because I just peeled through it. What every real estate investor needs to know about cash flow by Frank Gallinelli. I just, I encourage anybody getting into real estate to read this. This is a math book. There's a lot of math here to understand. It's pretty straightforward, but you need to know this before you get into real estate. It truly is true. I think that, you know, uh, many people, you know, are smitten by the returns. The returns are important, but you need to understand the math to truly vet an investment. Uh, the one though that changed my perspective is, is I've been obsessed with this one is Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. I think really you know, the, the stoicism that he has in the mindset and the way that he really worked to change his mind, I think is just compelling. And so I'm a huge, huge fan of that book. Yeah. Your first one there, I would agree. It is very nerdy and it is very like, there's no, uh, uh, storytelling behind it. It is a very cut and dry book, but I do believe that understanding how people get to their numbers in real estate is important if you're going to get into the space and that's the best book for it. And I'm going to go on a little tangent here and tell you my David Goggins story. So most people know I'm an Ironman athlete. I like doing long distance stuff. They, my One of my friends said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy called David Goggins? And I'm like, no, I never, never heard of him before. And he's like, yeah, you should look him up. Looked him up. Dude is crazy. I mean, it is just insane what he can go out there and do. And it shows you what you're truly capable of if you just don't let your mind win and let your body take over. Um, But he actually lives in Nashville. So I'll be darned, like two weeks later, after hearing about this guy and doing some research on him, there goes David Goggins without a shirt on, just running down the street. And I'm like, there he is. So uh, that is my one and only David Goggins story. And he's definitely a huge inspiration if you need to get up and get motivated in the day. 100%. Yep. Um, our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day. What are some of the habits that you do every single day? Well, I have a, a morning routine where I get up. First thing I do is I get on my knees and pray. Then I meditate. 
Then I do movement. Now, movement can involve exercise, but at a minimum, I got into a few years ago watching there's a strength side and the body weight warrior, but it's really just sometimes these animal movements to really just be flexible and move my body. And then I go into my office and I've been writing books, but it's really around create. How do I create and really sort of leverage that? But those are the things I think that I've been doing those, that type of morning routine for, you know, six or seven years now. And that's really been shaping me. And I think I can't live without it now. I picked up those four things two years ago and has been a game changer and life changer for me. So I, I love that answer. Our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Best piece of advice came from my maternal grandfather. And it was, you know, I'm going to tell you this. He said is you're going to find out that when you graduate from high school, you're going to realize that you don't know anything. And also when you graduate from college, you don't know anything. So you have to keep learning. And so he really instilled on me this, you know, this growth mindset of you've never learned everything. You need to keep constantly learning. That has been the best piece of advice sticks with me every single day. And something that I impart on my sons too, is what did you learn today? Because we've always learned something new every single day. I think your paternal grandfather and my father would get along very well because my dad said when I graduated college, now the real education begins. That's how he sent me off into the world. <laughs> Our fourth one is, what's the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I'm actually most proud of uh, this family my wife and I have created. You know, my wife and I created, came together as two, you know, individuals and we have three sons and we've created, um, you know, pretty good life for ourselves here. And I think that's what I'm most proud of. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh man. You know, I, you know, been noodling on this question for a while and you know, it's just, it's really, really hard, but I mean, I actually think that if I could do now that I've actually had so much learning, I would probably want to sit down with my grandfather again. And I'd probably want to ask him a ton of questions. That's awesome. Well, Chris, I really appreciate the conversation from a technology background to how people can work with that and earn their equity and really accelerate their wealth building journey to apartments and mobile home parks. If our listeners wanted to learn more about the topics that we discovered and reach out to you, where's the best place we could send them? The best place right now is thrivecommunity.fund. This is our, our offering that we have. You get a free webinar when you go there. Learn more about what we're doing in mobile home park space because if you are doing any investing at all, you need to be in the mobile home park space, thrivecommunity.fund. Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes. And when your book comes out, you have to come back and, and teach us everything in the book. Oh, I'm ready to. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.